Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss the rapidly evolving European energy story, the latest messages provided by incoming economic data, some thoughts on China's current plight, and of course, how investors can best navigate all of this complexity, with Phil Atreid, Head of Wealth Specialists, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. If you are new to investing, want to learn more about investing, or want tips on how to manage your long-term financial plans, check out our sister podcast channel, Money Plan, available on Apple, Spotify and SoundCloud. Hello and welcome back to another edition of Word on the Street. And uh, today, as I've got Will, our Chief Investment Officer, all to myself, we'll be exploring a range of different global topics impacting investment markets. Um, Will, it has been another pretty challenging week of news flow for investors across the world to navigate. Uh, So we've had more political turbulence in Italy and the UK. Uh, the first potential rate rise on the horizon for European Central Bank, uh, you know, in, in ages actually. Um, major developments, of course, in European gas, earnings season and China. So it's been pretty hard really to know which way to look. Yes, yes, yes. It's a familiar feeling at the moment, isn't it? It does all feel a little bit chaotic. I think it's in 11, over 11 years um, uh, since the ECB last uh, uh, raised interest rates. So it's, it's, it's quite a moment uh, if it does happen. Uh, and it, it should happen just after we, uh, after we record. And the real debate is whether it's going to be 25 basis points or even 50. Uh, so that's really the sort of where it's at. But, and, and Europe really is centre stage um, at the moment. Uh, it's, this week anyway, as you rightly allude to. So, I mean, the, the two big things, I think, or the two sort of newish things, you have the former ECB boss, Mario Draghi, uh, resigning as Prime Minister of Italy uh, as the kind of coalition, um, somewhat strange-looking coalition, admittedly, uh, crumbled beneath uh, his feet in the, last, uh, in the last few weeks. Now, we know that Italian politics is notoriously fluid. I don't think you read any kind of statement on Italian politics without that being the sort of the preface. Uh, I think there's almost as many parliaments as years in the post-war period uh, following that uh, that new constitution. We, we talked about this before, you know, in the 1946, I think it was constitution, they deliberately scattered executive power widely, understandably, uh, created as it was in amidst the, uh, uh, the ashes of Mussolini's reign. Anyway, now what matters now, I think, and what people are worrying about a little bit more with this instance of you know this fluid Italian political backdrop, is that um, Italy is sort of due to be the recipient of or application for um, sort of next generation EU funding um, in in the second uh, in the second half, and this aid naturally comes with strings attached, you know, certain conditions that you have to fill, um, and now there's the sort of you know at last. I looked anyway that it looks like we're going to be having elections um, in October, emergency elections in October. For us, um, you have seen a response in markets today, um, a little extra compensation inserted into Italian government debt, for example, so yields have gone higher. Um, These ones are difficult, as you know, it it can look intractable. um, But we've you know, we've 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 had quite a bit of experience over the last decade 
um, with um, having a look at the reaction function of this generation's uh, European uh, policymakers um, and their attitudes towards the Eurozone and their sort of appetite to kind of muddle through. Now, there are a few new faces around, but I, I don't think that's altered the commitment. So we kind of played this game before, but there is this difficulty here, which is, just makes it a little bit more complicated maybe to argue for muddle through, uh, and that is starting to be reflected in bonds today. Brexit, for what it's worth, though, I think, and this is a personal view, um, it, it probably has... Um, allowed Europe to actually get even closer um, and, and make, make, uh, make Europe, uh, the European Union, even easier to bet on or lend to as an entity. Um, they've made huge leaps forward, as you know, with the construction of the fiscal and political architecture for the euro, um, you know, forced by external things, so pandemic and war, you know, forced these giant leaps forward. Um, but I think that's important to, to, to factor in when you're hearing about sort of the risk of Italy, you know, sailing off into uh, or going back to the lira or something like that, you know, whatever. The gas piece that you mentioned, um, again, it is both incredibly hard to handicap what happens next and absolutely central, unfortunately. Uh, so we have seen the resumption of gas flows to Europe through the Nord Stream pipeline system. Um, however, these are not market forces at work here, or that's the suspicion at least. This is just part of a really unpredictable next uh, few months. I know I always say that, but I, I really do. Uh, I, I really do mean it this time. But uh, you know the Nord Stream story where there was, uh, you know, there was a, a shed servicing outlay and there has been concerns about whether uh, Gazprom would continue to supply through that pipeline and there's been a bit of uh, a, a bit of negotiation and so on but like I say this is this is this is there is a political or other motivations at work here beyond market forces sorry that was a long answer but it is quite it's Europe is where it's at at the moment it, it absolutely is. Um, and our investment team, they seem to be responding to some of the news flow uh, that, that you've mentioned and wider news flow uh, within our multi-asset class funds, uh, which are obviously invested across lots of different types of investments and also our portfolios as well. Um, I did note the move to increase government bond exposure at the expense of stocks. And I suppose that might come as a slight surprise to investors, uh, just given where we're at with valuations. Yes, I mean that, that 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 that's correct, Phil. You know that you described the move accurately. Um, yes, I mean I think. Um, I mean, uh, let's set the framework, the the, the 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 context first. I mean, yes, we've just described the outlook for uh, Europe is dizzyingly complicated, confusing uh, at the moment. But this call, as with most things in the world, capital markets rests primarily, uh, you know, on the on the US and the US economy. Um, we talked about the idea of you know. Um, policymakers, I think we talked about it last week or the week before, or you and I have talked about it an awful lot in the last six months anyway, but, but policymakers being increasingly boxed in by inflation. Um, and this is likely to continue to be the case for a little while yet, even if inflation does start to moderate, as we expect. I'm talking the US here. Um, and the problem, as I see it, is, is kind of, it's described with a couple of sort of points or descriptions. The first thing is that central bankers fear inflation becoming entrenched in the economy and our expectations much more than the potential for a short-term recession, dip in activity. This is by design, in a sense. Most central bank mandates kind of ask for that. Two, um, there has been good news on inflation, or it's in amongst all the sort of, you know, the worries. So average earnings uh, in the US have been coming down a bit. Um, you're seeing the economy slow, job openings will follow. You have actually seen food and energy prices have dipped a little bit, and that has been followed by long-term inflation expectations. However, 
last week we had a CPI and inflation print um, where really there was quite a, you know there was there was enough to worry about for central bankers in there. That would be the way that I would characterise it. Uh, and in amongst there, the, a big chunk of this is associated with shelter, you know, housing costs and so on, um, and that has the potential to continue to surprise uh, surprise um, positively. Th those two points lead you to the final thing, which is that. You know, this U.S. central bank is going to be continued, or this is the theory anyway, is likely continue to be forced into raising interest rates aggressively, even though you will get or should get burgeoning signs of you know economic um, weakness. And so there's three ways, I guess, that you kind of play this from a portfolio perspective uh, or a tactical portfolio perspective, because, as you know, it doesn't affect the overall kind of trajectory. Uh, but in that tactical short book, you know, that tactical little uh, 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 portfolio that we run to add those performance cherries, you've got an overall underweight to equities. Uh, we feel there's still some bad news to reflect in that. And actually, valuations haven't moved that much. If you look at things like something called the equity risk premium, the excess return you get from stocks uh, over uh, uh, or expect to get from stocks over bonds. Um, there's also within that a second trade, which is you already know about, which is we are overweight developed market equities versus EM equities. Now, this is a uh, emerging market equities. This is a relative value trade. And again, is one that tends to act well in a slowdown. Um, developed market equities tend to have a higher quality component. They're less cyclical, i.e. they're less exposed to the economy on average uh, than you see in emerging market equities and therefore in a slowing economy, as we expect to be the case for a little while yet. You should see that continue to add to performance. Uh, and the final piece is that duration, those long bonds. Um, at the moment, we feel that, you know, with central bankers trapped in this thing, and it was quite instructive, actually, the reaction to the that US CPI bit of data that I talked about, uh, you know, add it came in, the short end, i.e. the bit that's trying to anticipate what where interest rates are going to be in the next months or so, uh, ratcheted up a, you know, a good deal because they're expecting you know, more at having central bankers having to do more. But the longer end, when you start trying to lend to the government for 10 years or so on, uh, those interest rates actually held in quite well. And so the theory is that in the recession that's likely coming, increasingly likely coming because central bankers are boxed into a corner, you know, you, people will want the sort of, you know, the, 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 the portfolio uh, 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 support that comes with uh, with government bonds and those kind of safe haven aspects, the safe haven aspects of the asset class start to shine through. Right. And so what are the risks to this view? I mean, what are the chances that things maybe go a little bit better than, uh, than many might currently fear? Yeah, so it's a weird way to talk about risks, isn't it? That things might go better. Um, I guess, you know, this is coming from an economist, I suppose. <laughs> but uh, yes, I mean, I think there are still paths ahead um, where the world economy sees inflation cool faster. You know, we've got to acknowledge that. Uh, it could cool, cool a lot quicker. Inflation expectations could continue to moderate, as we've seen, or measured inflation expectations could moderate. Um, and the central banks could therefore start to be, you know, given the leeway to return more to kind of nurture mode. Now, in that scenario, if you think about it, uh, earnings forecasts, the, all those analysts who are studying the world's companies and trying to work out what's coming next in terms of their earnings profile, looking at those earnings in aggregate, they are already expecting a reacceleration of earnings into the end of the year, into next year, and margins continue to rise. At the moment, that seems fanciful to us, given what we've described. But in that benign case scenario, or in those scenarios where you get that sort of that soft landing, let's say, that would probably be you know more or less accurate. However, like I say, our sense now is that the number of benign paths ahead within that distribution of potential future outcomes that we always talk about 
or they're getting a bit fewer. They've been squeezed by the fact that uh, inflation continues to hang around uh, long after it has been not welcome. Um, you're seeing that, um, and and, um, and yeah, so it, it's really it, it's really difficult. And just to give you another, sorry. There's a lot to talk about on this subject, but just to give you another sort of couple of points with regards to this, like I said, you did see this um, drop off in um, long term or one measure of long term inflation expectations, consumer expectations in the US, uh, which was some solace. And this is thought to sort of dance to the tune a little bit of uh, food and energy prices as are happening right now. Now, we can't predict with any great reliability, you know, that's going to be dictated a little bit by what happens uh, not just in China in terms of a demand side, but also uh, what happens in Ukraine, obviously. So highly, highly unpredictable. The other bit that's interesting, I think, just to watch with regards to inflation expectations. Remember, this is what the central banks are watching to uh, see for second round effects, to worry that that's when inflation is becoming embedded is you're going to see the U.S. You know, campaign trail heat up. You know, you've got midterm elections coming up in the second half of the year. That will see inflation as a very hot topic uh, on the campaign trail. It'll be in TV ads. It'll be in people's faces everywhere. Um, and there is some evidence to show that people adapt their inflation expectations when they're being uh, sort of when it's being rammed down their throat by commentators like myself, basically. Uh, so there's there's you know, there's there's a lot to watch in the second half of the year on this front. But we still think it's probably you know more likely than not uh, quite a challenging path that's not quite accurately reflected in capital markets at the moment, or at least the balance of probabilities. Okay. So marginal preference for government bonds over stocks and within stocks, marginal preference obviously for the developed world over uh, emerging. And so I suppose with that, if we turn to China, um, and I suppose specifically, you know, should we maybe be continuing to have concerns about the wobbles in the property market there? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, yeah, there's not much new to say here, I'd say. I mean, you and I have been talking about this for some time, haven't mm -hmm. we? We have saying they've got a challenging um, set of trade trade-offs to continue to manage with COVID, housing wobbles. Um, I, I don't think um, still, I mean, this may be the wrong way to think about it. I don't think economic collapse is on the cards. Policymakers still just have uh, too many levers to pull. But I do think that those many challenges do argue for a kind of, you know, for a while anyway, a lower growth than we've become used to from, um, uh, from China. For the world economy, it's still US that matters by a long distance more. Um, uh, but yeah, the, the China is also, you know, for a different set of reasons in some ways and some similar facing, uh, you know, very challenging path ahead. Okay, and I guess uh, we've covered the rest, so it'd be slightly remiss not to turn our attention back to the UK. What observations have you and the team made there recently, particularly given all, all of the news headlines around political events? Yes, I mean, I think there's not much uh, change in terms of what the data are telling us on the economy. It's still a challenging sort of short-term outlook for the UK, like many other places, and in some ways more challenging, um, just because we've got, you know, the inflation, you know, the big inflation problems that characterise both Europe and US, they're slightly distinct, but we've got them both. Uh, so, you know, both labour market and that kind of commodity shock, uh, we've got the, the, the heat of them both. Politically, it obviously continues to be pretty interesting, but I'll leave that for Olivia. I hear you sigh with relief. <laughs> Quite well. I'm sure there's opportunities ahead uh, to have Olivia back uh, on the podcast. But, um, you know, on that point, though, we have heard some talk about reducing the degree of independence for the central bank. Um, and, of course, some reporters may well have linked that to some of the tremors that we've felt in Sterling. Is there anything there to pay attention to? 
Uh, maybe I mean I, you know that you know that you know the sort of um, the message from history here. I mean, there's that great story I think you and I have talked about with uh, Lyndon Johnson, President Lyndon Johnson, uh, hauling then Fed Chair William Chesney Martin uh, in 1965. I think it was hauling him down to the ranch and sort of basically ordering him to cut interest rates and sort of pushing him around the room. There was a sort of story of physically pushing. Him. I don't know how true that is, but that's the sort of the legend, and that is often sort of caricatured to an extent of the moment that central bankers kind of lost their independence to a, uh, or started, central bank independence started to fray a little bit uh, in the US, which ultimately, along with all sorts of other factors, led to the problems um, that, uh, that or, or this is how many perceive it, that, that, that we experienced, the economy experienced in the 1970s. And if you think about it, during this period, the Bank of England wasn't an independent entity from, uh, from politics. And, and it took, you know, the so-called Volcker shock, you know, Paul Volcker, this legendary central banker to come in at the end of the uh, 1970s and raise interest rates to 20 I think it was something around there to try and sort of cool, uh, cool inflationary, uh, cool inflationary pressure. He won. He re-established credibility, um, but that credibility uh, it does show that sort of you know that independence is very important. For those looking for a contemporary example, we can always cite Turkey, obviously, where they're doing their kind of you know where uh, Mr. Erdogan is doing some quite sort of eccentric monetary policy experiments. Um, political influence has to be extremely carefully codified and monitored and uh, prescribed, in my opinion, because central banks have to be unpopular. They have to make unpopular decisions. That's what you're seeing right now. Uh, that's very difficult, if you think about it, for an elected official to carry that, um, that mantle. Um, so th that, that, that's one of the reasons. But it's re I, I personally feel it's really important. But, um, but yeah, there's all sorts of views out there, as usual. Okay. And final point for today, you know, obviously reference the fact that uh, many and we may well be getting worried about the, the increased chances of recession ahead. Some clients and investors, of course, will worry what that means in the very short term, you know, for investment assets. Um, you know, and I suppose the question is, is there any sense that clients should reduce or hold back on exposure to investment markets for a period, you know, at least until the outlook is maybe a little bit easier to visualise in a more positive sense? Yes, I, I totally understand. Uh, it's a very, very understandable urge. I would make three points, and obviously these have to be framed in the idea that, you know, obviously there's a self-serving element to this. But anyway, the first one, this is one that sort of probably, you know, that Robin Meyer and all of us, frankly, would um, would feel very strongly about, which is that we want these investments to ultimately be a source of great happiness to you, our clients, and more besides in truth, you know, happiness, security, all sorts of things. That means getting you to that long term or helping you stick with the investments that you choose initially. Markets can be bumpy in the near term. We know that. Um, but it really can be um, you know, very, very difficult to, to stick with it. So I guess the point here is that at your initial decision, finding that mix of assets, uh, a risk profile, if you will, that fits you, uh, enabling you better to make that, uh, you know, that, that, that sometimes very difficult journey uh, and, and relax a little bit to be able to enjoy it over the long term. The second point is the old productivity point. Um, it drives your long-term re long returns. We know this. However, we don't know when, where, how and when it'll emerge. How can we? Um, however, 
I think that we are now uh, is uh, what was well characterized, I thought, by a, a very famous current economist um, as the kind of interregnum uh, between the ICT uh, revolution, the inter information and communications technology revolution and the artificial intelligence revolution. Uh, you need to be fully invested to be able to scoop the rewards to this. But like I say, history speaks quite strongly of being able to stick with it. The third point is global. Make sure you have your savings tethered to the world population. We don't know where that innovation is going to come from, who it's going to come from. Uh, we're just going to give you what's, what we try and do and spend all of our, you know, all of our expert teams devote their lives to, uh, which is finding uh, and stress testing and combining uh, the best possible mix of investments to make sure that you've got the world working on your behalf uh, day and night, 24 hours a day, um, to, uh, to drag your savings higher over the long term thanks to their increasing productive advances. So that means sticking with it, unfortunately. Uh, and I think that the important point is finding that portfolio or that mix of assets, that multi-asset class fund, um, that you can feel relaxed holding through these quite difficult times. And of course, that being the reason why you only make slight marginals, we've referred to tactical tilts here and there, uh, as there are certain correct. preferences. Yeah, um, absolutely correct, Phil. Thank you very much, as always, Will, for sharing your thoughts. Thank you also our listeners for joining us today. We'll be back with another edition of Word on the Street next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.